Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Tuparev. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects, and there is so much. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Tiny Mars helicopters, baby! Tiny Mars helicopters, moon landers. Uh-huh. Sinus uh, infections I, and podcast hosts. What? Oh, yeah. Well, that explains so, it. I apologize in advance for how I sound. <laughs> and uh, it's also party at the ISS. That's <laughs> a great little tease for the stuff that we're going to talk about today. That's great. All of those things. Yes. Um, shall we get into the pre-flight uh, checklist? I've got some stuff to talk about. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited in particular about this first one. We We have a... Deputy NASA Administrator who has been nominated. Yeah, a, dep- a Deputy Administrator designate to go with the designated uh, Administrator. These nominees, they have to be confirmed by the Senate. And it turns out that that one report that that said like a while ago that said, oh, here's what they're going to do. Was that Space Policy Online that did that? Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. It was Marsha Smith. No, wait, was it was it Eric Berger who did it? Somebody had a tweet like months ago that was just like, oh, here's what they're going to do. They're going to do Bill Nelson and Pam Melroy. <laughs> And, and it was like, I'm hearing this is, these are just rumors and I'm, I'm just hearing them all that. Well, that's, that's totally what they're doing. Whoever heard that, uh, that was, that's exactly it. So Pam Melroy, uh, is nominated to be the deputy administrator. Um, obviously we already talked about, uh, former Senator Bill Nelson being nominated as the NASA administrator. Um, if you don't know about Pam Melroy, she is a former astronaut. She was an Air Force test pilot. Um, a pilot first and then test pilot. Um, and then she was the pilot on STS-92 and STS-112, space shuttle missions to the ISS, and commanded STS-120, another space shuttle mission to the ISS. In 2009, she left NASA, and since then she worked at Lockheed Martin. She went to the FAA in 2011, back into government, and was the director of the Office of Commercial Space Transportation. And in 2013, she joined DARPA, uh, as the deputy director of the Tactical Technology Office. So she's got a lot of credibility. She's got government credibility. She's got aerospace credibility. Of course, astronaut credibility. Um, and also, this uh, this gives NASA a prominent woman in a position of power, not the number one, but the number two. And my read back when this was all rumored way back when was I, I could sort of see this as a one-two punch, which is we got we got the president's buddy, who's going to be the administrator and he's got all of the government connections and he is the politician. And then paired with him is the, uh, astronaut understands NASA also understands government. Um, and that's sort of what they're going for here is that one, two punch feels like to me. Yeah. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I really think having somebody at the top, with serious astronaut credibility is huge as we move into this Artemis era and having somebody who has not only flown on something like the shuttle, but also has spent time in the commercial space field, even though it was through the FAA, knowing those players, having contacts there, it just seems like such a good fit. And, uh, I I hope that, uh, she can be a balance to Bill Nelson's, maybe his sort of what we perceive as older school thinking. Now, we don't know where he stands on a lot of current things, but we spoke several episodes ago about how he was a, a huge factor in getting the SLS project put together in the first place. And so maybe she can bring some uh, some different points of view to things. Uh, I think it's a great 
nomination, and uh, I look forward to her being named. Yeah, it makes me also think that she's got to be the um, now the leading candidate <laughs> for at least in a in a Democratic administration, the leading candidate for the next NASA administrator. I, I sort of read it that way too. That that um, that what better credibility than being the deputy administrator? But regardless, I think it's a, right. Uh, as as lukewarm as I am on Bill Nelson, I am um, not on. <laughs> Pam Melroy, I think she's going to be great. She's she's going to be inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame, too, by the way. Just, uh, oh, that's cool. They were going to do that last year, but because of COVID, they put it off. So she's a Hall of Famer. And, and Bill Nelson is old. I mean, there's really no way around it. He is. He's, he's just an old guy. Yeah, right. It's true. And, and, and so he may, I mean, it may be where he doesn't even serve the full four years. I mean, I'm not saying anything bad will happen to him. Right? He may reach retirement age at some point. So I think Maybe. you're right, though. She would definitely be on, I think, anyone's short list in a Democratic administration. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, Stephen. Now, we've talked a lot on this podcast about commercial cargo mm-hmm. and commercial crew. Yes. Right? Like this NASA using commercial partners rather than building it with contractors, but under NASA's complete control. NASA putting out an RFP and basically saying, we want you to build something and we'll contract for your services, which is what they did with cargo and crew. We've seen it especially be successful with SpaceX. We are now entering a new era. I think this is actually really mind-blowing, but also super exciting. We, we've talked in the past about how the spacesuits on the International Space Station are old, and they don't have enough parts, and we got into that situation where they were going to have the first all-woman spacewalk, and then they couldn't because they didn't have the right sizes of spacesuit, yeah. because there are only certain numbers of spacesuits. Well, that is all potentially going to go into the past because now we seem to be entering the era of commercial spacesuit. Commercial everything. <laughs> it's just commercial all the things. Commercial spacesuit. NASA put out a release uh, earlier this week, I think, that said that it plans to, and I'm going to just quote it here, shift acquisition of the Exploration Extravehicular Activity, XEVA, system to a model in which NASA will purchase spacesuit services, spacesuits as a service, Stephen, <laughs> from commercial partners rather than building them in-house with traditional government contracts. NASA needs XEVA suits and capabilities to support the ISS and lunar surface missions under Artemis. So the idea here is that one or more commercial partners are going to design, develop, build, assemble, test, and maintain uh, what they're calling a fleet of EVA equipment. Um, and that means suits and all the hardware that's related to suits. And it is for the lunar surface, for use at the Gateway Space Station, and for use at the ISS. Which, it's a big thing, because they're basically saying, our next-gen spacesuit, is, somebody's going to make it for us. We're not going we're, we're to do that internal government thing where we build a spacesuit. We're going to make it more like a, a, a commercial crew vehicle. We want someone in industry or a team or whoever bids on this to do suit services for us i mean we've seen great success with this in other areas right we're getting ready to have a second crew fly to commercial crew starliner is not far behind which we'll talk about seems to make sense to me yeah i think it's really interesting i I don't know now i know that a lot of work has gone into next gen spacesuit research at nasa and i don't know what becomes of that if that gets killed or if that ends up being the thing that informs the discussion with the partners about this also, kind of curious about who who bids to build a spacesuit, right? Mm. Like, 
are these names we I'm sure some of these names are going to be some names that we've heard a million times before they're big aerospace contractors and all of that right but I wonder are there scrappy <laughs> spacesuit builders out there who are space like space suit startups as a service like spacex for space suits where they're like we're <laughs> we can do this way cheaper than all these other people and we we're gonna we're a startup and we're gonna we're gonna build the world's greatest space suit um i don't know also if it's commercial suit just pointing out here it could be used by anybody right like if you're the russians and you want a new space suit you could buy that spacesuit from as a service from them too. Like I, I don't know. It's really interesting. It is. I, I do expect it'll be mostly companies we know, but yeah, who knows? It, it does open right. up opportunity. I mean, look at something like commercial cargo and commercial crew. Yeah, you've got big names, but it was also SpaceX's really their way into success. And Sierra Nevada hopes to follow that. So it, it is an opportunity for companies who aren't as well known to make an impact. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to follow this. All right. Uh, pre-flight checklist is long. Stephen, why don't you it tell is. me what is up with the Boeing Starliner? Where are we, speaking of commercial crew, with the other commercial crew vehicle? Yeah, so Starliner, of course, had its not-so-successful uncrewed test flight. And since then, they've been working Boeing and NASA together to deal with the software issues that caused that flight to uh, to fail. They're now targeting August, September for the second uncrewed orbital flight test. There's a bunch of factors that go into this date. The big one is what we spoke about last time, is that it's a really busy time at the International Space Station, and you have to have docking space because one of the objectives... Yeah of the orbital flight test is to dock and then undock safely with the ISS. So you can't have, like, we, we have we have crew, like we talked about last time, right now we have crew one up there, and mm-hmm. then crew one moved their capsule because crew two is coming, and then after crew one leaves, there's a cargo transfer that's happening, and and so you can only really target the period where there aren't two things docked on those two international docking adapters. So it's a pretty limited window for the next test. That's right. So you've got to be able to, to get there when there's a parking place for you. Otherwise, you're just you're just waiting. Like nobody wants to sit idling, <laughs> waiting for somebody to move out of a space so you can take it. That's yeah, no we've good. all been there at the mall. Yeah. And this is space. It's much worse than the mall. <laughs> uh, you also need the Atlas V rocket to be available. It looks like there's uh, one available in the fall. All However, right. Boeing says that they will be mission ready next month in May if something changes and another opportunity arises. All that's really left is to fuel and load cargo into the Starliner capsule, which are things you do right before you go. Uh, at this point, the team has gone through all of the recommendations from the independent review team. We spoke about this months ago, where NASA embedded engineers all throughout the Starliner program in Boeing, and they came up with this list of things to change and fix. All of those, including those that were not mandatory for this flight, have been resolved, which is fantastic hmm. to hear. They're wrapping up software testing basically as we speak towards the end of April. And NASA and Boeing seem so confident they are actually beginning work on the first crew test flight hardware to be ready. So if this is a successful test in the fall, 
they could follow up pretty quick, pretty quickly with a crude flight uh, upon Starliner. So they seem confident these software issues are fixed, and I look forward to seeing them succeed. You know, it was hard to watch it it fail, and right. clearly they've spent a lot of time and effort and resources into into fixing it. And so hopefully this goes off without a hitch, and then really, really then truly will be in the age of commercial crew where NASA has two providers to choose from at any given time. And uh, it'll probably be 2022 before they send people up, but because of all the traffic and everything that's going on here. But you're right. The year of commercial crew will come again yep. <laughs> in 2022. <laughs> uh, all, uh, all things going well. So that's good. Good news. So, so we're talking about how busy the International Space Station is. Uh, what else is is going on there? I know SpaceX is going to launch Crew 2 within a few days. Yeah, there's a lot of traffic happening at the International Space Station. It's actually pretty cool. This is one of those things that's like the liveliest I think the ISS has, has been since the space shuttle stopped stopping by to drop things off with their, you know, seven people and all of that. Um, so... Uh, first, uh, there's a, a Soyuz update. So NASA astronaut Kate Rubens, along with the Russian cosmonauts Sergei Ryzhikov and Sergei Kudsverchkov, um, they just returned from the ISS in the Soyuz MS-17. That was last week. Um, you know, we've been talking about capsule juggling on the U.S. side. We just did. Uh, there's also capsule juggling happening on the Russian side. In March, they actually had to move MS-17 from the Rosfet module to the Poisk module because um, they needed to make way for MS-18. <laughs> so they were moving modules around, moving uh, capsules around too. MS-18 um, brought Oleg Novitsky and Pyotr Dubrov, who are cosmonauts and NASA astronaut Mark Vandehei, to the ISS. So a uh, little Soyuz action going on there. Three up, three back down. And now it's time for the next set of crew moves because Crew 2 is now set to launch shortly, like in three days from now, um, April 22nd. And uh, this is actually a really big milestone mission for reuse of space hardware because although we've seen a lot of, you know, SpaceX first stage landings on drone ships or back at uh, back on land occasionally, this is is the second mission for the Crew Dragon Endeavor, which was uh, the, the spacecraft used in Demo 2, which was the first crewed mission of Crew Dragon. And it's the second launch of the Falcon 9 first stage that carried Crew 1 up to the ISS. It's been refurbished with, I would say, a more careful eye because it's carrying astronauts. NASA and SpaceX worked, and they replaced a couple of parts on it that... that SpaceX might not have replaced is the impression I get if it was just sending cargo up or launching a satellite, but because it's on crew, the the bar is higher. Um, and so this is going to be astronauts in a reused capsule flying on a reused first stage That's cool. to get to the International Space Station. So this is, this is how you lower access, uh, uh, the cost of access to orbit for astronauts is, is exactly this. So... Uh, it is a milestone in that way. And then um, just to be clear, because I don't know if we've mentioned them before or not, it's been a little while, a refresher. Crew 2 has two NASA astronauts, Shane Kimbrough and Megan MacArthur. And then there is uh, Akihiko Hoshide, who is uh, from JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, and Thomas Pesquet, who is a French astronaut from ESA. 
So uh, when they get there, it will be party time on the ISS. There will be 11 <laughs> people on the ISS until Crew Dragon Resilience and the Crew 1 team depart on April 28th. So it's a short turnaround. It's like a week handoff. Um, but there'll be 11 people there. And if you're, like me, curious about what the record is for people on the ISS, it is 13, which happened a couple of times. And if you do the math, it's two Soyuzes and a space shuttle will get you 13. A full seven-person space shuttle crew and two three-person Soyuz crews will get you to 13. Happened a couple of times. And I read an article that said that 12 is probably the technical limit of the ISS. Ideally, if it's handling all of the air uh, recirculation and stuff itself, when the shuttle was there, you know, technically the shuttle and the ISS were performing those tasks. Right. So that's a little bit different. But uh, so not quite 13. Um but although, and, and I don't know if they would ever do this because, in fact, it may be over capacity, but you could get to 14, right? If you had two three person Soyuzes and two uh, commercial crew with four people aboard, you could potentially get uh, and set a record. I, but it sounds like that, that would be too much traffic for the ISS. And they're, they're, they, um, everybody seems to be falling into this rhythm now with the commercial crew stuff being there, where they're, the Soyuzes do a changeover and the commercial crews do a changeover. And uh, you just get these brief moments where there's a party in space with 11 people invited. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing that over two decades into the life of the International Space Station, we're entering this new era through commercial crew where the crew can not only be larger than it's been in a decade because the space shuttle has been gone, but you can also rotate through pretty quickly with all, with, you know, both providers up and running hopefully next year. Right. It's, it's, it's neat to see. And um, my understanding is we've talked about this before. There's a question in, uh, in the, the live chat about um, are they bunk sharing or sleeping in the capsules? My understanding is that there, there are bunks for many of them, but when you get, tight like this there's some people who you know there's at least one person who sleeps in the capsule um maybe more so you know that's it is space right like when the capsule is docked it's a usable space of the iss so you would take advantage of it anyway so that's all happening so so you know we've already got stuff primed for next time when we when we are back here in a fortnight i have one more pre-flight item okay which is uh just a quickie about uh scott kelly who is the astronaut who spent a year in space there's a new study that came out there he's sort of been a guinea pig for a lot of sort of long duration space flight biology stuff and this study said that despite all of his frequent exercise on the iss his heart shrunk 27 percent in mass during his year in space which sounds kind of terrifying but his heart still worked fine. It does make people think about like what are the long duration zero gravity flights? Uh, you know what what are the ramifications of that if you end up like landing on Mars, which doesn't have Earth gravity, but it still has gravity? And would you pass out? Would you get lightheaded? What you know if your heart is too weak? So it's an interesting question. However, there is this really interesting footnote to it, which is that Scott Kelly was a really fit guy before he went up. It turns out that couch potato type astronauts they're you know for an astronaut a couch potato let's just say say, that's a sliding scale (laughs) yeah like for an astronaut they're a couch potato they're probably an olympic class athlete but they're more sedentary than say uh scott kelly um they actually when they went up the the couch potato astronauts they didn't name names they know who they are um once all astronauts on the iss have mandatory workouts because they want to maintain muscle 
um, and bone density and heart health and all of those things in zero gravity. And so you've got, you put in, my understanding is kind of a lot of exercise time every day that you're in space. You have to do mandatory exercise time. The couch potatoes, their hearts actually grew on the ISS because they presumably weren't exercising like that back on Earth. So this study that, you know, I think some people reported as being like, oh, no, Scott Kelly lost a lot of heart when he was uh, in zero G. Is that bad for people's hearts? It may actually be that the hearts adjust to the load changes in space. And if you're a super intense athlete, it may take a, a little bit of heart muscle away because you don't need it right then. And if you're a couch potato and now you're in zero G, but you're exercising heavily every day, it will actually bulk up your heart to get it to be. And that our hearts are, are and our bodies are fairly adaptive to, uh, to various conditions. Also, Scott Kelly, now that he's back on earth, he's basically back to normal. And again, took a little bit of time but um, but now he's back to normal. So these aren't permanent changes either. It just takes some time to lose and gain uh, muscle mass, even if it's in your heart and even if your heart is in outer space. So I just thought it was a really interesting story. And I love the idea of a couch potato astronaut. Who is that? Who are you? Did you bring potato chips to space? What happened? <laughs> All right. This episode of Liftoff, yeah, it's brought to you by Tupper of Technologies again. They're great. Um, they want me to talk about space junk this time. Space junk. It's an uncontrollable piece of satellite or rocket debris left by us humans. We're the real monsters in space. Currently, there are a few thousand dead satellites and over 25,000 fragments larger than 10 inches in Earth orbit. The number of smaller fragments, completely unknown, but it's been estimated into the millions, and most of them are not traceable. On astronomical images, space junk fragments are detectable by faint traces. The team at Tuparev Technologies are developing a new family of modern image processing tools. And a few months ago, they were asked if their new software would be able to calculate the orbital element of such a space junk fragment within a second or two so that a ground-based telescope could be directed to obtain follow-up images in order to calculate the exact or orbit of those fragments, which is important so that they can put them in the database and avoid future collisions with satellites, rockets, or the ISS. The team ran a few successful tests. Initial measurements showed that their software is about a magnitude faster than the currently available astronomy packages. That's pretty awesome. Now they want to help other developers writing astronomy image processing kits. So the team is starting a new portal describing the FITS image format, which is de facto standard in uh, astronomy stuff, and some different image processing and image pipeline techniques. New content is going to be added each week to help others write modern astronomy software. So if you are into this stuff, you can find out more about the FITS guide at FITS.guide. That's right, FITS.guide. I love it. Uh, which is also where you can join the Star Cluster Initiative. You can subscribe to the Star Cluster newsletter. Once again, that's FITS dot guide just like it sounds to learn more about fitz guide and join the star cluster initiative and sign up for their newsletter thank you to Perev technologies for keeping helping keep our skies a little bit safer that's pretty cool and for supporting liftoff and all of relay fm all right jason it is time for the sls segment wow i'm sorry steven as, as the second uh, as the second of your two sls items uh will reveal I'm kind of over the SLS now. <laughs> I think I've reached that point where I'm I, I I'm calling it. But just for for uh, officialness, space launch se system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. 
<sighs> What's in the SLS segment, Stephen? Well, first, there's uh, good news about the Artemis One core stage, and then we'll get to the other thing. <laughs> okay. Which is good news for somebody, not the SLS. <laughs> the Artemis One core has been given a clean bill of health after its successful green run test fire, which was just about a month ago, towards the end of March. The team had to do some refurbishment. Again, this was expected. You have to dry out the RS-25 engines. Uh, you have to make some repairs to them. You have to make sure the thermal protection system is all still good. All of that work is complete. Uh, the team now is uploading flight software. So the software on the SLS core stage computer was for the green run. You have to replace that with what it needs for flight. And all the, the things that hook it up to the B2 test stand, uh, all that's being disconnected, and then it will be lifted off the test stand and loaded onto NASA's Pegasus Barge for its trip over to Kennedy Space Center, uh, which, of course, will be its last stop before launch. This got me very curious about who moves spacecraft around, and I came across this link on NASA's website about the ground and marine transportation team. This team is based out of Marshall Space Center, and their job is to move SLS and Orion hardware around to various NASA centers during development and testing. So months and months ago, we spoke about the Orion capsule you know, being up in Ohio somewhere and doing uh, doing testing there, and, and all these things move around over time, and there's this team out of Marshall that's responsible for that. So that's pretty cool. Uh, mm -hmm. to, to know who is doing this. It is expected to be uh, uh, at Kennedy, I think sometime in May, towards the end of the month, probably. And then uh, at that point, it will be taken into the vehicle assembly building where the solid rocket boosters are already ready to go. And the mating process uh, will begin. And out the other end will come uh, an SLS. Eventually. <laughs> you sounded like a National Geographic documentary there for a minute. And then the mating process will the begin. process. So that's all good news. Yep. Inching closer to a launch of, of the uncrewed Artemis One. Couldn't be more excited. At the same time, <laughs> yep. NASA has announced its winner for the human lander system contract. So this is going to be hardware built by a third party that will be used to actually set down on the moon. There were three companies in the running. There was SpaceX, there was a defense contractor named Dianetics, and then there was something called the National Team that was Blue Origin, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman working together. Blue Origin was kind of out in front as far as marketing. They had the uh, the Blue Moon Lander that I think Jeff right. Bezos stood under at some point on a stage. Indeed. Just made me think of a beer, Blue Moon, but... It's uh, it's come down to SpaceX being the the winner of the two point nine billion dollar contract. It was widely expected that two winners would be named. If you think about commercial cargo, commercial crew, which we just spoke about, having yeah. two platforms and two companies working on this gives you options. If one fails, or if one can't build one fast enough, you could alternate between them for for later flights. Whatever the case may be. Uh, it gives you options. But Congress's budget for NASA was lean on the human lander system uh, line item. And so one winner has been named SpaceX. 
and it's for an uncrewed flight and a single crewed landing, and then subsequent landings will be awarded under follow-up contracts. But this really puts all eyes on Starship and really asks the question, why do you need SLS and Orion if Starship can do this? Yeah, I was explaining this to my family. They gave me this look like, that doesn't make any sense. And and just to be clear, okay, first off, subsequent landings. Yes, this is about uh, not being given enough money by Congress. It's sort of NASA saying, well, if you're not going to spend money on the lunar lander, we're just going to pick one. And it's this one. And But the bigger question, so if I describe this to my family, which I did, what I said was, okay, here's how it's going to work. They're going to get in the they're going to get in the Orion capsule on top of the SLS and they're going to launch to the moon. The SpaceX Starship is going to launch to the moon. They'll get there, rendezvous. The astronauts will leave. This is for Artemis Artemis 2 for the first or Artemis 3. It's for the first Artemis 3 is the first crewed landing. landing on the moon, right? Artemis 3. They'll transfer from the Orion to the Starship, and then the, this the second stage, the, the one that, that we've been seeing in testing, the one that looks like a sci-fi rocket ship, they'll transfer to that, take it down to the moon, go around on the moon, come back up with that, transfer back to Orion, and go back to Earth. And presumably, maybe the Starship will also go back to Earth, but without people on it? And my, and my family looks at me, my son and my wife, and they're like, why would there be two? Yeah. And the only answer I can give them is politics, I guess, because the truth is that although it's not currently, uh, you know, it is the plan is for Starship to be human rated. It is the plan is for it to take humans to far off destinations. And as a result, you look at this and you're like, why do we even need the SLS and Orion in this scenario? Why would you not just put the people on the starship, launch the starship to the moon, take it down, land it, go around, and then come back home? And you know what? Uh, a lot of politicians noticed this too because there was kind of an outcry when they announced this and the outcry didn't seem to be, oh my God, how can you do this? The SLS is so wasteful. Maybe we should cancel it. Instead it was, oh my God, how dare you question the supremacy of the SLS, which is fascinating, <laughs> including our congressperson from Texas, where they're building Starship, where they would launch Starship from potentially saying, this is outrageous. I No, no spaceships should launch from the state that I live in and represent in Congress. Just what a topsy-turvy kind of uh, story this is turning out to be. It's nuts. It, it, it really shows that these two really are, not, are on a collision course, right? And, and the more and more I think about Starship being how, how we get down to the surface... That that one point five launches, man. That the Eric said on the show a few a few weeks ago, I just, it just keeps rolling around in my head. Yeah, right. I mean that that is exactly uh, what I've been thinking about too, because you know that he said it and it has really stuck with me. I uh, so Lori Garvin, who used to work at NASA and is now uh, very independent and speaks her mind about this stuff. She mm -hmm. had a tweet where she basically said. And you remember, she went on 60 Minutes like a month ago and said, 
uh, SLS is a waste of money. <laughs> um, and what she said here is, this is NASA threading the needle. This is NASA basically saying, we want to have a flight system that's capable of taking people to the moon that isn't SLS. This way, if they kill SLS, it doesn't kill the program, which means that it eliminates one defense of SLS, which is that if we kill it, we are killing Artemis. It eliminates that argument because you're saying, no, actually, we can take people with the thing we're already planning on taking them down to the moon. We can just take them to the moon with that thing. And it strips away some of the insulation that the SLS has gotten politically. Um, SLS has a lot of fans in Congress and a lot of fans in uh, congressional districts who are getting money from it. If you look at the money that's spent on SLS, this is a $2.9 billion contract for the for the Artemis uh, lunar lander starship program thing, right? Like, that is, that is n- nothing compared to the cost of SLS. Like, yeah. an SLS launch alone, and that's not the ground services, is a billion. It... it increasingly makes no sense. And I think NASA knows full well that it makes no sense. And, you know, there's a delicate dance. NASA gets its funding from Congress. Congress holds the purse strings. But you look at this, and it's hard not to look at it and say, this is a move to allow people in Congress to make the argument that we can we can cut funding without cutting the program by killing SLS. And and I don't know. We'll see what happens. But like NASA's taking its money and apparently this was the low bid and SpaceX uh, changed the financing over time in order to fit it in within NASA's budget. But NASA also said, quite honestly, SpaceX has invested in this with a lot of its own money. And that impresses them. And that they they said that SpaceX's management of their systems is is first rate. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to work with SpaceX, especially given the the background using commercial crew. So yeah, it it's it's hard to imagine using SLS in the long term if you have a completely human capable system that's much cheaper. That you're also using as part of the program. I mean, this is this is seismic. It doesn't mean that the game is over for SLS because politics, but it's hard it's hard not to look at this and say the jig is up. Like finally, somebody has just laid it down. Which is, uh, it it if this all goes on, it's over because there's no justification for SLS if you're you're sending your SLS to meet with a human-rated rocket and then just doing a, a pointless crew transfer in order to get down to the lunar surface. I think all that's extremely well said. And I do think that this is NASA playing some chess uh, with that outcome in mind. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I I also think, you talk about um, the value of having two of everything and they only have one here, but it kind of is two, right? It's kind of a bigger two. Instead of it being two lunar landers, which is what they originally planned, instead it's two launch systems to take people to the moon. One of which is the one they've been working on for a long time, and the other which is under development and still hasn't landed without exploding, but is under rapid development from a contractor or from a, a commercial entity that they that they know and that they have great confidence in. 
and will theoretically do everything the other one does plus land on the moon. Um, yeah, so uh, fascinating. And keep in mind, Bill Nelson hasn't been <laughs> been uh, uh, confirmed as administrator, but you sure. know, I don't think you're. I don't think that's a rogue. I don't think Steve Jerzyk is a rogue NASA administrator that is <laughs> no. not working with interim administrator that is not working with the complete knowledge of the Biden administration as a part of a, a decision like this. Um, but the political fallout is going to be severe, and we'll see where it goes. But um, I don't know. It's a, it's a huge move. And it may be that we now spend the next couple of years in a, a really weird par- set of parallel developments where we basically watch to see if SpaceX can invalidate the SLS. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely going to be a lot of talk comparing the two directly because that's what NASA's done. They put them side by side. Yeah. And it really puts a lot of eyes and, I think, pressure on SpaceX's Texas development to to get this thing going. I mean, people are already paying attention to the Starship launches because they're fun and so far have all exploded. But I think that we're going to see that work really get dialed in and really see SpaceX put the the pedal down on this on this program because they've got this contract now and they got to get ready. And I think it's going to be a really fascinating time to watch this develop because I mean, Eric talks about it in his book when they were developing uh, the, the Falcon rocket, the Falcon one, the original one and the Falcon nine, some people were paying attention, but the public wasn't. And now they have all of these eyes on them. I think it's going yeah. to be just fascinating to see how they, how they play that as they continue to to work on this. I have been struggling to come up with a, a good analogy for this. And a, this is the best I've done. I don't think it's good, but it's the best I've done, which is I need to take my dog to the vet. So I have custom built a motorhome to take the dog to the vet. It's very expensive. It's very large, but it will take my dog to the vet. There's only one thing, though. It doesn't fit in the parking lot of the vets. So when we take the dog to the vet, now that I built this thing and it took a long time to build it and it's very expensive. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to load the dog in the, in the motorhome and drive to near the vet. Meanwhile, my wife will drive in our car to that same location. And then I'll transfer the dog into the car and the, the car will go into the parking lot and take the dog to the vet. That's basically what we're talking about here. Seems and the fine. answer is, why would you not put the dog <laughs> in the car? Why did you build a giant motorhome to carry the dog most of the way to the vet? The answer is, it's because I decided to fund all of my local motorhome uh, <laughs> uh, shops with some stimulus. And uh, yeah, anyway. We will watch this as we have been. The SLS segment, I don't know, Stephen, I feel like the SLS segment is uh, is in jeopardy. I think it could be. That, that's okay. Isn't there the Starship launch system? So it's fine. It'll It's fine. It fits right in. It's fine. It'll be fine. That's what, oh, that's what we meant all along. Bye, SLS. <laughs> <sighs> Let's take our second break and then talk about Ingenuity. Yeah, there's a quick break. I just want to tell people about um, some friends of ours who are doing a space newsletter. So if you want some more space and you want it in your inbox, check out Orbital Index, one of the best newsletters you will ever see covering space science and the space industry 
Every Wednesday, our friends Ben and Andrew will send you a technical roundup of the best in new space startups, recent launches, space science, and exploration missions, all delivered right into your email inbox. Everybody loves newsletters now. It's a hot new thing. Uh, Orbital Index is concise. It's super nerdy. And you may even enjoy their attempts at humor. I think if you're listening to Liftoff, I think you will enjoy them mm-hmm. as much as you enjoy this, whatever this is. <laughs> so go up, uh, go sign up right now. You can find them, orbitalindex.com. Couldn't be easier to check out uh, Ben and Andrew's newsletter. I have read it for years. It's great. Well, it was really early in the day for us here in America. So I knew, I knew, I knew last night when I wake up, I'm going to check my space list on Twitter see what happened because Mm -hmm. yeah ingenuity's first flight was scheduled and it went off it's a huge success there's a youtube link in the show notes from perseverance uh video of this just go watch it and you have to like i had to like tell myself while watching it this is happening on mars so it lifted off about three meters about 10 feet off the surface hovered for 30 seconds and came back down, but what a huge step. Yeah, I mean, flying, keeping in mind, and we've, we've detailed it here a bunch, but like keeping in mind, Mars gravity is a third of Earth gravity, and Mars atmosphere is like a order of magnitude, a couple orders of magnitude thinner. It's like, it's it's super thin, incredibly attenuated. And so how do you build a flying machine? And the the answer is it's really hard. <laughs> to fly completely autonomously in thin atmosphere with light gravity. Uh, but they did it. So it's really a historic moment, A an Earth-built craft uh, flying in the atmosphere uh, under a controlled flight, not just crashing through it to land, but a controlled flight through the atmosphere of another planet. It happened today. On Mars. <laughs> On Mars. <laughs> Space! That's right. So mm. the next step will be to look over all of the data and imagery. Uh, there'll be a second flight really uh, no sooner than three days from now. And then from there, considering what else to do. So I, I do expect the second flight to be uh, a bit more ambitious. Mm. And it's, it is, uh, it's really neat. But then that'll be it, right? Perseverance will leave Ingenuity. Uh, Ingenuity will go to sleep. Well, have done its job. Have done its right. job. I wonder if they, if, I don't know what their their plan is for all of the further missions. I know that they've got a certain sort of uh, range that they expect for this thing. But yeah, I would imagine that they'll pull, they'll push it the more they do saying like, well, let's, let's see if we can fly all the way over there and, and, uh, and we should be able to get back, you know, pictures and video and all sorts of things from it. It's very exciting. And again, this is a tech demo in some ways. It's historic, but it's also a tech demo. I, I was thinking back to the, uh, was it Mars Pathfinder? The first little rover. Mm-hmm. Little skateboard. The Sojourner rover, right? Which was like a little skateboard on Mars. And now we've got, we've had a couple of decades of golf carts or SUVs on Mars. But it started with a proof of concept um, little skateboard guy. <laughs> and I, I look at this and I think, this is going to end up factoring into all future Mars mission planning of like, let's, you know, let's bring down uh, a a drone or several and be able to use them to scout ahead Mm -hmm. or look at like cliff faces and things that a, that a Rover can't get to from down below. 
um, just so many different opportunities for um, not not pun not intended for for uh, more Mars exploration with this. Right. And then of course the Dragonfly is being planned to go to Titan, which is a much thicker atmosphere, but also much much colder. Um, so there's already that in the works of another. Uh, uh, flying machine on a mm-hmm. drone on an, another planet or another uh, uh, moon in that case, another celestial body surface that is not the earth. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It does unlock so many opportunities that a uh, Rover just has intrinsic limitations, right? And no matter how good they get, there's just terrain they won't be able to manage. Uh, you know, I, I even think about missions uh, that, aren't rovers you know that are stationary landers like insight where you could still have uh, a drone as as part of that right? right uh to go out and explore the area around um i also wonder if there's some sort of uh, a future where a, a whole mission is just a drone you know we talked about dragonfly but even on mars you could decouple these things yeah so- the, the danger is that the um is that you got to keep the the drone itself really light, yeah, or, or it won't fly in that thin atmosphere. But but I think that there may not be much of a difference between a lander with a drone, like you described before, and a drone with a base station. Like, True. I'm not sure that's really actually any different, and that that's really interesting that this doesn't replace landers because landers. Are, are are rovers because rovers have the ability to carry all their stuff with them, but it might be a way to make lander missions much more dynamic and be able to explore a, a wider area while still having sort of a base station that can, uh, you know, radio control it and relay messages to it and do all these things that you're never going to be able to miniaturize enough and keep light enough to keep on the, on the flying part of it anyway. So it's just, it's another tool in the exploration toolbox. And that's, uh, that's super cool. It's very exciting. And, I mean, seriously, huge congratulations to people who worked on this. Uh, we we spoke about it during its development, but you have all of those issues, and testing flight like this on Earth is not easy. They had to basically create an entire test suite to try to mimic the Martian atmosphere and Martian gravity. And you, I mean, it's just a huge project. It is. It's almost overwhelming to think about what had to go into this and watching that video this morning. I think it made my week. Yeah. That's a, that's going to be a memorable, a memorable event. Even if we get nothing else, it's a memorable event, but we're going to get more, right? That's I think so we're going to get a lot more. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about it next time. Yeah, we will. And we will be back in a fortnight ish. We realized the last couple episodes have been on kind of odd days for us. We're off of our usual schedule due to other life stuff and, uh, and other work stuff, but uh, we'll be back, you know, two weeks ish with yeah. much more on this. Um, before we go, Stephen, you want to, uh, tell everybody a, a little bit about something else that's on, li- on uh relay FM. I do. We'll talk about, uh, top four. It's a monthly podcast Aww. about opinions, lists, and loosely held rules. We've both been on it. It's yep. it is a lot of fun. I I drank every uh, Lacroix flavor. That's right. You were also on the salad one, I think, weren't you? We did a we did. A, I think that was a member bonus episode where we did the top top four things that are in yeah. salad, and and the first selections were all not vegetables. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like when you're a kid and go to the salad bar. It's like I want ham. Yeah. I just want a bowl of ham. 
Yeah. Cheese, croutons, those are my tops. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's hosted by Tiff and Marco Armit. They seriously can make a top four list out of anything. Some other examples, instant coffee, card games, TV couples, Pop-Tarts. It goes on and on. It never ends. Check it out, relay.fm slash top four, or search for top four wherever you get your podcast. If you want to learn more about the stories we spoke about, head on over to relay.fm slash liftoff slash 148. While you're there, you can get in touch via email. Uh, you can become a member and support the show directly. Uh, we will be having our membership annual special coming up uh, here pretty soon. So keep your uh, keep your ears out for that. If you want to find us online, you can do so. Jason is on Twitter at jsnell, and you can find me on Twitter as ismh. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all. <laughs>